Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Occasionally, in life, there are those moments of unutterable fulfillment which cannot be completely explained by those symbols called words. Their meanings can only be articulated by the inaudible language of the heart. This is another great traveler, not the one we're exploring today, in whose footsteps I do also hope eventually to follow, to India, where his entire outlook shook and redirected when he traced the footsteps of Gandhi, and to Birmingham, where he went to jail. Martin Luther King Jr., whom we celebrate today, January 17th, 2017, just before an inauguration many of us still struggle to understand. The stride toward empathy marches on. This is episode 35, Afterwardsness, Athens, where Sigmund's desire led us astray. The stairwell that leads to Freud's office in Vienna, which was also his home, is very dim. I thought about all the people who had walked there before me, what stories drove them, and what images played through their minds as they ascended, like I did, what they felt when they pressed that buzzer. I sat down with one of the directors of the Freud Museum. They published a book called Freud's Travels, which points out that one of the defining metaphors he used for psychoanalytic method was especially personal. Freud wrote, as a guide for patients undergoing treatment, say whatever goes through your mind. Act as though, for instance, you were a traveler sitting next to the window of a railway carriage and describing to someone inside the carriage the changing views which you see outside. Finally, never forget that you have promised to be absolutely honest, and never leave anything out because, for some reasons or other, it is unpleasant to tell it. Daniela Finzi, who wrote this first section of the book, goes on to explain why this choice of imagery is not surprising. Outward exploration and discovery always go hand in hand with an inner expansion. The experience of the other is a crucial factor in re-experiencing the self. Indeed, experiencing new and unknown things with one's senses, of which travel is eminently conducive, is a central feature of modern self-conception. Freud was an avid traveler who pursued it as education. Peter Nurmeyer, the director I spoke with, picked up the thread from the book. But first, I asked him how working at the Freud Museum might have shaped him. Being here, coming from another field, let's say, have you ended up becoming interested in in Freud? I've always been interested. It's never been that far away from me. But of course, I've I've read my share of Freud and... uh, 
One of the things uh, being here and working here is that you cannot stop yourself from starting analyzing everything and everybody. <laughs> this is maybe you're not a therapy house and all these things, but still you start always thinking about what is this person really meaning? Or why do they, they behave like them? So although I'm not psychoanalyzed myself, I always start psychoanalyzing other people. Yeah. So I think this is one of the, the things and uh, always when we are in internal discussions, at one point we start thinking about these things every time so this is very this is one of the influences this house brings with it of course because uh, it's the main issue but the other point is you have to think that you're still a company with 20 employees yeah. so <laughs> it's quite quite a task just to keep this house alive and we're trying to to renovate and uh, refurbish uh, in the coming years and we're working on raising funds now mm -hmm. And these are the tasks that are not so psychoanalytic. Sure. But you guys have done a fantastic job. I was, I mean, the museum is a treasure uh, downstairs, getting to see Thanks. everything that you've preserved. Uh, and it's well explained. It's, it's just a rich experience to go there. So thank you for succeeding. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. We're trying, when we're refurbishing, we're trying to, to keep the, the feeling as it is now. So um, we have so many visitors that we have to do some things like making an elevator or doing the, the cloak rooms, um, toilets and these things. But on the other hand, it is important that still the people will have the same experience as they have now, that they have the door open for them, that they have the feeling to visit Freud yeah. and not just uh, go into a museum where you have a big uh, glass doors and the, those crosses where people go in and out. This must never be the thing here because this would destroy, would destroy the atmosphere of this museum. Because um, when you've been to London and you've been here, you see that the most of the, 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 the objects are in London for reasons, for obvious and important reasons. Mm -hmm. And so what we do have here is just the, the, the atmosphere and we have to keep that. Yeah. Uh, I think this is, uh, this is the real treasure here. It's less the objects who are in London, it's more the, the atmosphere and the feeling uh, the knowledge that you walk on the floors where Freud was walking, that you look through his windows and all these things. Yeah. Can you just briefly describe the museum, what it looks like? Describe that atmosphere for my listeners, people who haven't traveled to Vienna yet and seen Freud's office and home. Uh, what? Yeah, give, give an impression of what it looks like and feels like. <clears throat> yeah, the Sigma Freud Museum is situated at the Berggasse 19, which is the address where Freud was living for 47 years and where he wrote most of his papers, where he met his patients and where he also had his family life, which is an important thing uh, also when it comes to his travels. And... Um, we do have the original building and we have parts of his furniture and the documentation on life and work. So when you come to the museum, you open the, the house door by yourself and walk through the stairways where you where also Freud's visitors were walking. And then you uh, can ring a bell and the door opens to Freud's private rooms, basically. And then you can walk into his practice, where his furniture, his waiting room and see about his life and you see a very very um, you see you see not even pictures but also video that is only shown here and in the Freud Museum London so you can you can kind of delve into the feeling of Freud's time when you are here you can experience how 
Fred lived and how he worked and also this is not so uncommon as he had his living and working situation but it's uh, today it is uncommon it was quite common in those days so you also get the feeling of a specific era where Vienna was one of the intellectual um, centers of the world and where um, things were very moving and uh, interesting and many discussions and a very intellectual scene in the whole city so you can also breathe the air of that time and also you you may get the feeling of how Freud lived and how he started developing his so groundbreaking theories and of course you can just stand there uh, where he was standing and see where he wrote his famous papers it's, yeah uh, you mentioned that you guys have so many people you have to fight them off can you share numbers like uh has there been an increase recently or yeah we have uh, we have an annual increase uh, since the last five years I may say mm. and um, this year we will be the first time in the six digits meaning we will have more than 100,000 visitors which is quite a lot when you think that we are just an apartment yeah meaning small yeah <laughs> last year we had 91,000 uh, so this will be an increase of 10% and any idea what's causing this increase? People like to travel. <laughs> <laughs> this is the whole thing about it. Um, the city of Vienna has more and more visitors each year, which helps us a lot. And the important thing is that the people come from countries where psychoanalysis is a big issue. Mm. Um, if you think of uh, visitors from Arab countries or from China, they do not come to the Sigmund Freud Museum or hardly anybody. But uh, the visitor numbers in Vienna are also increasing uh, again from the United States. We will see how this will develop and uh, especially from um, South America. Mm -hmm. And South America is very Freudian. If you think of Brasilia and uh, Brazil and if you think of Argentina, they have many, many Freudians and Freud is there so common. Not that everybody really knows what psychoanalysis is about, but Freud is such a popular figure there that for those people it is kind of the usual track to come here to the Freud Museum. Yeah. And uh, so these are uh, bringing the high numbers. And besides that, we could raise the, the Austrians who come here by making interesting exhibitions and uh, marketing them. And we uh, also have the, the feeling that the European economy has been a bit... Um, uh, recovering in the last years. So there was a time when hardly any Italian came to Austria because Italy was close to a financial breakdown and since they recovered they're traveling again and we always have many Italian visitors. Yeah, yeah. How would you characterize the people that come here? Are they pilgrims uh, <laughs> or are they tourists? You know, what? what's their attitude when they come usually? Um, I guess you may not interact with the visitors that much from your office here, but... Well, I see them, uh, I walk through the museum uh, basically daily and uh, see the visitors and I always uh, ask the, the the people at the cash desk about those things. And yeah. the usual visitor we do have here is that what the, the travel economy calls the, the FIT, the Free Independent Traveler, meaning we... We do have groups, but most people are individuals who are coming here on a rather a higher level of education mm -hmm. and surprisingly young. 
given that there are many people can only uh, afford traveling when they're a bit older. We have many younger tourists, many students who just want to be here and younger doctors and of course uh, psychoanalysts, but um, many other people. Just um, I would say we are, uh, since psychoanalysis is something very special, uh, our uh, people are more um, interested in intellectual topics than from the usual art museums. Mm, yeah. And even the art museums have highly educated visitors, but basically we have so many with university degrees and all these things. So I would say they are um, independent, they are uh, small groups or single travelers, and they are high educated. And uh, as I said, rather young yeah. compared to other travelers. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned before that you have developed a habit of analyzing people endlessly and yourself. <laughs> Can you give an example of uh, maybe someone you observed in the museum that you couldn't help but analyze? Uh, <laughs> oh, really? has, that, has that happened? Yeah, defi definitely. I really have to think about that, which one I will take. But uh, sometimes I see people who are... Um, I have to say, I think uh, narcissism is a big issue, for example. Sometimes mm. you see people who uh, are walking around in the museum and then just want to make sure that other people notice that they know many things about Freud or that they that they, they want to get noticed by our museum staff, for example. They yeah. just want that they notice that they know things and sometimes when there is a guided tour there is this thing of uh, <laughs> people starting to uh, to give an giving kind of a co-guided tour <laughs> and uh, this is one of the, the things that my, my colleagues often tell me that you have uh, some visitors who just want to be taken care of especially mm. and this is one of the things they want to, to, to show everybody that they are special yeah. and they want to be treated especially which is kind of a problem when you think about having 100 people in the museum at the same time yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of the things that I can remember which happens quite often and yeah do you find are people attracted here because they think they can get some kind of therapeutic help here does that ever happen or hardly ever yeah uh, <laughs> I think the people are attracted to the museum just because they they are they want to to just be here. One of the most moving things I had uh, here was an, an American psycho, psychoanalyst or psychiatrist at least. I'm not sure if he was a trained psychoanalyst himself, but he was a proper Freudian. Hmm. And uh, I guided him through the museum because uh, a mutual friend uh, asked me to do that for him. And when we walked in from the private parts and really were standing right there where Freud uh, uh, had his patients, he was so moved that he started crying. And this is something very, uh, also very moving for me because sometimes you forget when you go in and out here every day how important this place is for so many people. And yes, there are many people who are also they are writing in our guest book that psychoanalysis and Freud's work was so important for them because it cured them or helped them cope with uh, so many anxieties and problems in their life. Mm. And so they do not uh, expect cure from here, but when they experience cure, they want to go here and pay their their visit to the place where their their cure started. Yeah, yeah. I was 
reflecting on the tram on the way here, <laughs> thinking, why was you, I you attracted re, You read to the this? train window saying in there, in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, can you share that for the, the listeners? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, when you think about Freud and his, uh, his, his travels and the importance of his travels, you just have to think about the metaphors he used. And one of the metaphors which is quite clear on that is when he uh, wrote in, the, in his writing on the psychoanalytical treatment that uh, you should tell your patient to, to observe himself like looking out of a train window and telling everything that he sees when he looks out of this train window. Hmm. It's uh, <laughs> such a deep quotation, thinking about all the experiences he had collected, looking out of train windows and what that might have meant to him. Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, Freud has, uh, has had a, quite an intensive travel habit. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, it was quite common if you were of kind of a higher class, which Freud was not basically, but he, he uh, developed into one of the better bourgeoisie people here in Vienna and he but the big difference is that he just did not go somewhere to relax or see some old stones as many other people did but it had such a big influence on him that he uh, when he uh, when he started his interest in archaeology he found out that the whole method of psychoanalysis is very close to, to archaeology because it's uh, putting down layer by layer from a personality until you're on the core and this is more or less what an archaeologist does when he finds something he has to get rid of each layer that has covered the, the finding over the, the last centuries until he's on the core of that mm. so yeah I was reading he was kind of uh, deeper in his methods of travel than the average traveler uh, visiting archaeological sites and, and things like that do you know how he got access to these kinds of things when he traveled? Yeah, he had all these things, uh, or many of these things, organized beforehand and uh, has written letters. But most of these things were not as today that they were closed and you could hardly go there. He just had to organize something there. Yeah. When he went to Naples, it was not that big of a deal to come to, to um, Pompeii and look at it. Uh, and even the the... The, the idea of traveling to, to educate yourself was already common there. Mm -hmm. So this was something that uh, in the German-speaking culture was especially uh, brought up by people like Johann Wolfgang Goethe, whom Freud also read, uh, who was traveling through Italy and, and writing down everything he saw there. And So these were those people that are, in German we call them Bildungsbürger, uh, don't know if there is a proper English word for that, but uh, people of high education who are proud of this education and try to, to uh, develop more and more knowledge. And so Freud was definitely one of them and he was traveling around to, to uh, learn things, mm. to get to know things. And also he just liked to see, uh, to see uh, old cultures. Mm. This is one of the things when you think about that he was uh, surrounding himself with thousands of antiques. Yeah, uh, that's one of the, the most surprising things about this museum to me was getting to see those artifacts that he's collected that are eerie looking, either unusual, you know, the, there's some Egyptian artifacts, I think, and mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, he had antiques. Yeah, he had antiques from from all over the world. He had Asian, Egyptian one. He he didn't have a proper method what he would buy and what he would not buy. He was just what he what was interesting him. He would buy. Yeah. Uh, this was basically the thing, and um, it was a kind of uh, um, recurrence to to old times because it was also his interest in art and music was not not avant-garde so he was more interested in baroque art for example mm -hmm. and he was interested in in very very old um, artifacts uh, who were giving him kind of a look back in time i may say and he was even as a child he was reading all the old texts with that were uh, very common those days and one of his heroes as a child uh, was um, hannibal whom he also Uh, took as a kind of an inspiration when he wrote about his own trip to to Rome again. Mm. So uh, it was always his strong interest in all the all the past myths, and I think this is one of the of the reasons why he also had the this huge collection of antiques because uh, they were so connected with mythology. Mm. And he he was not like Carl Gustav Jung, who was uh, going more and more into mythology, but. Definitely, it was kind of an inspiration, and if you think that his last writing, which was a very uh, a big critique on all religions, mm -hmm. um, was called uh, Man Moses, mm. which also says that he does not only write about religion itself, but he but he uses the myth or the writing, uh, just uh, the 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 Bible to to discuss it and he takes Moses as a figure and puts him out of the context as a Jewish man and even thinks he may have been just an Egyptian mm. and uh, tries to destroy the myth to destroy all the thinkings about religion itself because he himself was a proper atheist until the end of his life mm -hmm. and so he was uh, how do I say mythology was for him something he always used as an inspiration and also used to just discuss and uh, I think that uh, for him it was always quite clear that what uh, is in the people's minds uh, sometimes comes out in these stories and it's interesting that many of these stories have uh, persevered over, over thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Can you just list some of the places that he traveled uh, that stand out? You mentioned Rome and Naples. Yeah, um, there were of course the ancient places like As I said before, Rome and Naples, uh, Venice, of course, also Athens. And there are so many other places he also traveled. Uh, you have to not forget his trip to the United States, which was basically a business trip, where he was <laughs> invited to give some lectures mm -hmm. and where he tried to, to uh, spread the word of psychoanalysis and develop a psychoanalytic movement there, which uh, survived up to now. Um, and there are also many, many other trips. He was in England several times, even before he then fled to London, because he had older brothers in Manchester, and he was uh, traveling to France. He had his, he also had a, a scholarship at uh, Paris, where he spent some months. And uh, one of the most important destinations for the young Sigmund Freud was Hamburg. Mm. because this is where his later um, wife lived ah. and he visited her several times whenever he could afford it he met her in Vienna but then her family moved back to Hamburg where they originated mm -hmm. and um, there were meetings in secret <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he was not a, a real doctor at that time and so he, 
First of all, he had to finish his studies and open a practice, and then he could marry her and take her to Vienna. And another place he visited quite often was Berlin. Mm-hmm. First, because uh, he also had family there, and then there was uh, there were friends like Wilhelm Fleece, with, with whom he uh, sent out different letters. And then uh, this was the place where he had his operations for his cancer treatment because he had cancer in his mouth. And uh, it was uh, the sanatorium Tegel there where he had his operations. So are there other places of importance? Let me think. Um, one thing that he, that a place that he never traveled to, but which was, was would have been very important, was Egypt. Mm. He would have loved to go there, but he said uh, he, whenever he could afford it, he was just too old to go there. Mm. So this is why he never <laughs> made it to Egypt. Um, and there were so many other cities in Europe and also uh, places of not such a high historical importance. So he was spent some time in Croatia, for example, mm. which is quite nice, where he was just, uh, there are some nice writings that he was just uh, in the water for hours, smoking cigars <laughs> with his brother standing <laughs> in the water and having a waiter bring them drinks. So it was, sounds lovely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, can, I can very well imagine these times. Uh, so... Um, he, uh, he traveled a lot also on the different places in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he had a, he was in the High Tatra, in the, which is now Slovakia, mm. uh, in uh, Košice, which was then a kind of a cure place. And um, he, I uh, do not know when he visited his hometown the last time. I think it was as a child. I don't think that he was there later on, but I'm not so sure. It's Freiburg. Right? Freiburg, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is quite a lovely place, actually. Yeah. Uh, so there is also a Freud Museum. Ah. It's both house. <laughs> They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the displays that I appreciate most downstairs that you guys have prepared is his travel uh, bag. Mm. Uh, with his initials yeah. uh, do you know if he had any rituals when he traveled any habits or particular methods that would give insight into the way that he traveled well um, I do not think that he had such uh, I mean there are no, no rituals that, are, uh, that have survived as far as I know so we do not have any clue, or I at the moment do not have any clue which rituals there would have been. Uh, some things that were of importance were that he would never traveled alone, basically. Mm. So he uh, liked to travel with his wife. Later on, when the kids were here, he sometimes took on his sister-in-law, which uh, also made, uh, made up for many discussions how the relation between him and his sister-in-law really was. Mm. And he made a lot of trips with his brother Alexander. Another thing is that he uh, usually had quite clear uh, plans, schedules for his trips, mm. but he also used to and change them. He designed those himself, or did he have secretaries that arranged things for him? Mm, I think that he designed them himself, yeah. basically. But uh, these things are not so clearly written down anywhere. Sure. Uh, so it's quite possible, um, thinking about him and his life, that his wife or his sister-in-law may t- have taken care of many of these things. Mm-hmm. And um, there is another another thing about his travels. He uh, did not only travel around, which were always round trips somewhere, but he also had his summer retreats. 
Yeah. So there were the times when he spent his summer, for example, in Berchtesgaden, which is between Salzburg and Munich, basically. And also in the outskirts of Vienna later on when he was older and in the in the, the Eastern Alps at Semmering or Reichenau. And uh, which was important on these days is the fact that uh, he never stopped working there. Mm. So there are many of his books that were finished somewhere in the Alps, for example. And uh, um, he also saw patients there. Yeah. There are uh, passages from his letters, especially from... Berchtesgaden, where he went there with his whole family. You have to think about, like in former times when, uh, when the, uh, the the emperor moves with the whole court. Yeah. So he took his family there, his <laughs> sister-in-law, all the kids, and then he was there with all that he needed to write. And uh, the patients who could afford traveling there went there and saw him there. Yeah. That's fantastic. And the secretary was there as well, of course. <laughs> So just for my listeners, I have to explain the reason that I'm talking with you is this book called Freud's Travels, which I found in the, the bookstore downstairs. Yeah. Uh, and the, the uh, people here at the museum prepared this wonderful study, uh, research into his travels. So can you talk about where this idea came from? And you said, was there an exhibit along with this when, mm-hmm. when this was written? Yeah, we uh, we were thinking for some years about making uh, another exhibit that shows more about Freud's private life and uh, things that were important. And, and the thinking was, we are a, a museum, and a museum that has 90% of tourists here. Mm. So they're all travelers in their own way. So this was one of the inspirations to say, well, uh, people come here and travel, so why not do something where we think about traveling? And then we found out... Uh, I mean, we knew that Freud was traveling such a big lot, and uh, also one of the things about the traveling that is always part of uh, the house here is the fact that Freud was not born in Vienna, and that he did not die in Vienna. Freud is a very specific and uh, internationally known Viennese figure, but uh, he was uh, born in another city, and he died in another city. So meaning traveling was the beginning and the end of his life. Mm. And, uh, well, there are all these writings and letters that are so inspiring about this travel. So that also uh, made us the decision quite easy to, to work on that because uh, it's such a rich topic and you can do so many things. I'm pretty sure we could have done a second and a third exhibition on his travels and we would not be ready after all. Yeah, absolutely. So I have just a few more questions. Thank you, of course, so much for giving so much of your time. Uh, you mentioned before that he operated in this with this idea that was popular in, in German culture, German-speaking culture, that travel is education. So, how does that work exactly uh, <laughs> for for him or or for the culture at large? What what does that mean that travel is an education? This means that you uh, can, of course, read about the places and the places of importance, but. When you, you really want to know about a culture and the past and all the things, you have to be there. Yeah. And when you are there, you take the time, you take a guide who explains you much more than you have there. And it's, I think it's kind of also kind of a physical learning. You learn more when you're uh, on the place. And 
The other thing is that um, when you read about all these things, um, and I can say that from myself, uh, you read about all these things and about past history and all these things, you just one day you want to be there. So it's also kind of a longing that uh, that develops when you start reading. So uh, I was also in Pompeii twice because I, I just wanted to be there. It was so important. <laughs> and uh, the the other thing about the it's not only the places it's also that you uh, are confronted with another language another lifestyle and you meet so many people when you travel and mm. so meeting people and seeing how they live and discussing with them is also an important point of learning uh, about culture and about man himself yeah yeah absolutely so do you know how or if travel changed Freud uh, it's a big question that would take a book or more to answer, but in brief, in what ways did travel change him or shape him? This is a very, very interesting question. Um, I think that uh, travel gave Freud quite an insight about uh, all the, the different, uh, different people and feeling that you can meet. And the other thing is that he... Uh, by his travels, he he found the inspirations, as I said before, for all the the, the writings afterwards. Mm. And uh, one of the things is um, that he was seeing the the Moses by Michelangelo in the church in in Rome, mm. and he started uh, writing about that, for example. So so he took many inspiration of that. Yeah. How much he would have done without traveling is very very difficult to say. Uh, at least for me, um, but I think that his whole habit of traveling around and taking up so many impressions just enriched his way of thinking and his way of developing theories. Mm. I think when you just stay, and uh, this was not only Freud, if you just stay in your own four rooms and never travel, you cannot open your mind to so many different things and try to find other perspectives. Yeah, yeah. All right, here's the big question. Even bigger. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Can you tell me uh, one of the best travel stories from his life? You've already mentioned uh, a few, like in Croatia. That's a great <laughs> moment, you know, but I'm curious if there's any definitive, uh, you know, anecdotes that capture his experience of travel? Well, uh, there is this thing when he was uh, on the Acropolis in Athens, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm not sure if I bring it together properly now, I have to admit. Sure. Uh, but there, uh, he was writing about that uh, in a letter to Romain Roland, as far as I remember. When he was in Athens, he, uh, he, uh, he got lost. And I think he got lost twice or three times on the Acropolis. <laughs> and it was for him uh, a very important thing to see that he also has the habit of uh, make, uh, having kind of Freudian slips, that he had his unconscious longing to stay there. So this was one of the things there. And I think this, was, uh, this is not one of the, the big funny stories, but one of the, the big stories for himself when he was traveling yeah. to see these things. And um, 
That's fantastic. That's exactly the kind of story that I look for, you know? That's a dream. I mean. there, is a, there is a writing about that. Okay. It's, uh, it's a letter to... Romain Roland, a French writer. Okay. And if you... Um, and I hope I put it together properly. Perhaps I mixed up two things, but there was this... The story that he got lost uh, several times, and I think this was the elephant's piece. Well, I'll I'll compare the reality to what you said and see what yeah. I can find out about you. <laughs> but when you when you Google remembrance uh, Acropolis, uh, remembrance Freud elephants, I'm pretty sure you will find the, the proper thing about it. Absolutely. But it's more more or less about that. Freud got lost, and he he found out why he got lost. I mean. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. And uh, I just have to ask, since you've spent so much time with me now, what about you? What What's your best travel story? <laughs> Has travel played a big role in your life? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I love traveling. I really have to think what is my best travel story. Um, well, one of the... Uh, of the Travel stories, which is not really, uh, which is will always be one of the, the best uh, best moments I will remember was when I was on honeymoon with my wife. We were in Naples and then on the island of Ischia, which is close to Naples. And one day we decided we wanted to go a hike because Ischia is basically a mountain and you, you can go up the mountain. And um, we were going up and up, and the weather got worse, and we noticed that already. And uh, then some point we decided we cannot we cannot uh, it's not fun anymore yeah so we turned around and went down again and we've seen uh, uh, an italian farmer who was with his uh, with his um, how to say a little motorized vehicle with three wheels uh, they call it uh, ape piaccio ape in italian and he was there and uh, he had uh, a dog and a mule on the back <laughs> And so we were walking down and he got ready with his works and then he overtook us and he asked us something in Italian and I think he asked us if we want a, if we want a lift. <laughs> and um, none of us really speaks good Italian and uh, so we uh, did just with hands and, and feet and so on. In the end, uh, my, my wife went in, into the cabin next to him, which was very, very cozy for two of them <laughs> because it's actually a one person, right? And I was... I was up on the, the open plank of the pickup. The the mule was uh, running after the, the, the little pickup on a on a rope, and the dog was always running around. He was driving down the hill faster and faster in the rain, and I was just trying not to fall off. And the dog still was running around because it was narrow narrow street. So basically, we're talking about 20 kilometers per hour, not faster. But and always the dog jumped up and down and. I don't know if it just wanted to bite me or save me, but <laughs> this was really strange. And then there was this whole moment when he had to stop because he had to bring the mule somewhere else and we said goodbye and <laughs> that's it. Uh, but my wife stayed rather dry. I was also, but it was such a fun ride. <laughs> this was one that's of the fantastic. best things and kind of a, kind of a nice honeymoon story. <laughs> I was well, very Thank you. Well, that's it. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, and, and 
you spoke so eloquently about Freud. I'm really I try, impressed. I my best. <laughs> I mean, you really have absorbed uh, all these stories. Um, this was exactly what I was looking for. Oh, so, that's great. It's nice and, to hear. Uh, thank you for speaking English. I appreciate sure, it. Sure, sure. <laughs> I did go back and read the letter Freud wrote about his visit to Athens and the Acropolis. It's called A Disturbance of Memory on the Acropolis. There is, in fact, no mention of his getting lost. I can't thank Peter enough for taking time to sit with me and discuss Freud and his travels. This is a high water mark for the observer effect. Go to Berggasse 19 in Vienna and buy this book, Freud's Travels, that Daniela Finzi, Monica Pessler, and Frank Stern wrote. Thank you to them for letting me read some of their work here. Before we go, I want to share one more story. The first person that I lent to on Kiva has paid me back in full. Kiva is a platform that lets you lend small amounts of money to business owners in places where capital is hard to find. I joined about a year ago, around the time I started telling you about it each week, here on The Observer Effect, and the first person I selected to lend to was Dominga, the president of a communal association in La Paz, Bolivia. She weaves and sells blankets. I lent $25 that contributed to a fund of $5,800 for buying wool wholesale. Only nine months later, she and her association had paid back the loan, and I relent it. I've just been meaning to tell you that. You can make a small loan, too, on kiva.org, K-I-V-A dot O-R-G. Join our team, the Observer Effective team. There's a link to Kiva on our website. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.